0: Want to do some birding in Cuba this fall? Join me, ABA Birding Podcast host Nate Swick, for an ABA trip to Cuba. We'll see Cuban trogan, Cuban toady, Cuban crow, and a bunch of other birds that don't have Cuba in the name. 10 days, 11 nights, September 8th through 18th. I'm excited. I would love for you to join me and Arturo Kirk Connell, who, who literally wrote the book on Cuban birds. Get more information at events.aba.org. Hello and welcome to the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I'm your host, Nate Swick, and um, have, you guys, have you guys heard about this yellow cardinal? It's a, it's a northern cardinal, but it's yellow. That's it. It's yellow. I don't know if you heard, uh, but it's been in the news a bit. Yellow were supposed to be red, that's the thing. Far be it for me to poke a little fun about how people interact with birds, I'm I'm probably literally the last person that should do that. But like many birders, I imagine I've been a little befuddled, a little bewildered at the extent to which this thing took off. Speaking for myself, it very quickly went from, oh, that's that's pretty cool to, oh my god, why am I still hearing about this thing? It is, after all, a, a northern cardinal, perhaps the most familiar feeder bird for a great many people in the US and Canada. You folks out west, obviously you don't get to enjoy them, but the, the whole of the eastern two-thirds of the continent does. There's an element of familiarity at play. I think I think that's a big part of why this thing went nuts the way it did. You know, do not sleep on the appeal of cardinals among the general public. There's a reason they are on all the Christmas cards. I have sports teams named after them. They are in that uh, that pantheon of birds that people get really invested in alongside hummingbirds and bluebirds. That sort of tweak, the variation on that theme, was just enough to get a lot of people excited. You know, I, I think the second reason this yellow cardinal blew up was uh, because the the photos were so good. I mean, they were really nice photos of this bird. I guarantee had the homeowners taken a a distant, you know, maybe mostly soft photo of that bird, it would it would not have been an interest beyond the local listserv. Uh, this reminds me of a conversation in an earlier episode I had with uh, Greg Nice and Ted Floyd. Uh, we spoke in episode 0120 about how photography has changed birding and i think and ted made a comment that i think is really relevant to this situation uh, namely that any of us might post a photo on social media of something like a uh, henslow's sparrow some of the really cool but but pretty cryptic species and we would get a response pretty much exclusively from other birders but if you really want to get a big response from non-birders you need something more evocative, something like a, a great photo of a sandhill crane, or or ducks in flight, or um, as it happens, a yellow cardinal. You know, people really respond to that, and this uh, this yellow cardinal is the most recent example. So kudos to the photographer Jeremy Black for that. A quick example of what I mean. Uh, Bernard, in my home state of North Carolina, a couple years ago, took a photo of a, a yellow scarlet tanager, so yellow in the same way that this cardinal is yellow. You know, it makes sense. You know, Scarlet Tanager and Northern Cardinal are in the same family. They're actually pretty closely related. The mechanisms that cause the plumage irregularities in this Cardinal and in that Tanager are probably exactly the same. Uh, but, you know, Scarlet Tanager is just a richer red than Northern Cardinal. So the yellow was just, you know, more bright and more intense. I think that, you know, objectively, the Tanager is a better looking bird than this Cardinal. But, you know, here's the kicker. Scarlet Tanager is not a feeder bird. And not on the radar for for a lot of non-birders. The image of a red scarlet tanager isn't imprinted on their brains. You wouldn't immediately recognize a golden one, a yellow one, as unusual. And two, the photos were not as good. They were they were okay. The bird is obviously gorgeous, but the photos were not as sharp. Um, so the impact is lessened. So even if those photos of this of this yellow scarlet tanager had been shared at the time, it, it wouldn't have gone viral. I don't think it had to be a cardinal nothing else would have worked so i don't know it's it's an interesting phenomenon to witness but this uh, yellow cardinal really seems to have hit the bullseye in terms of interest you know maybe it leads to more birders uh, maybe it doesn't maybe it opens that door just a a little bit wider for that person who's already sort of interested Uh, i don't know it'll be interesting to see i guess this is all sort of a way of saying uh, yes i've heard of this bird you can you can stop sending me the links. On the show today, it's officially springtime at least in the meteorological sense, and Greg Neese and Ted Floyd are back to discuss the seasonal eruption of bird song in ducks. Yeah, you heard me right. They will speak on the wonders of duck song. But before that, Wild Birds Unlimited CEO Jim Carpenter knows a lot about bird feeding, and he distilled that knowledge into a new book called The Joy of Bird Feeding. Will he share the secret of attracting your own yellow cardinal? No. No he does not. Uh, I actually talked to him and recorded this interview before that yellow cardinal showed up. But that shouldn't turn you away. He's here to talk to me about bird feeding after this week's Rare Birds. ¶¶ This is your ABA rearward focus for the last of February, first part of March, 2018. I know you're getting tired of me saying that it's been a little slow, but uh, it's it's been a little slow. There are still a lot of continuing rarities of note in the ABA area, like Nazca Booby and Gargany in California, Sinaloa Wren in Arizona, Blue-bunting in Texas, and, and amazingly, the ABA first Missile Thrush in New Brunswick, but new birds of that caliber have been pretty scarce since in 2018. It's been interesting to see reports of tufted duck are up this year. We talked about the bird in South Carolina in a previous episode, as that was a state first, but there have been individuals in unusual places throughout the winter. Typically, tufted duck records in the east, at least, are restricted to the maritime provinces and maybe northern New England. But we've seen birds in Ontario, Maryland, New Jersey, and Rhode Island in the last couple of weeks, all of which are noteworthy, perhaps made all the more so that they've all been recorded in one season in one year. It's also been an exceptional spring for Ruff, the flashy Eurasian shorebird that is an ABA code 3 species, on account of the fact that it is reliable, if unusual, in the ABA area every year. Both West and Northeast coast birders see Ruff reported every year, but in the middle of the continent and the Southeast have seen notable records in the last couple weeks, including birds in Victoria County, Texas, McIntosh County, Georgia, and Jasper County, South Carolina. These are almost certainly birds that have overwintered in the Americas with our resident shorebirds and are moving northward with flocks of migrating sandpipers. So it's a good idea to keep that species in the back of your mind as you scope your mudflats this spring. This is just a little bit of the rarity landscape for the period. For a more complete picture, check out the ABA blog every Friday morning. You can also follow along with up-to-the-minute reports of rare birds throughout the U.S. and Canada on the ABA's Rare Bird Alert Facebook group. That's facebook.com slash ABA Rare and on our ABA Rare Bird Twitter feed at ABA Bird Alert. In 1981, my guest Jim Carpenter opened the very first Wild Birds Unlimited store near his home in Indianapolis, Indiana. At the time, it was one of only a very few bird-specific retail outlets in the country. Since then, Wild Birds Unlimited has grown to include more than 300 stores across the U.S. and Canada. It is without doubt the premier name in wild bird retail. Jim's new book, The Joy of Bird Feeding, The Essential Guide to Attracting and Feeding Our Backyard Birds, was published late last year by our friend Scott Nix. Welcome, Jim. Thanks for joining us. Me.
1: Well, thanks, Nate. Great to be here.
0: You know, I want to talk about a couple things with you, Wild Birds Unlimited, and of course, the book, so we might as well go in that order. When you opened the first Wild Birds Unlimited store, there were not very many bird-specific stores out there. What were you seeing that prompted you to take that leap and, and open a bird supply
1: store? Unemployment. <laughs> yeah, we' <laughs> will do like, it. <laughs> I just, I'd run a garden center for a couple of years, I quit, couldn't find a job that I wanted or that wanted me, huh. and uh, I was a bird watcher. I was then, I guess I'd learned retail through the, running the garden centers, and I thought, well, you know, I had a few thousand dollars uh, sitting in the bank. I, th- I thought, why don't I try a little store? And First, I was going to do mail order uh, out of my house just to save the rent, but then I found this great little place for uh, rent in uh, kind of a funky part of Indianapolis called Broad Ripple, where all funky things got started and, and, <laughs> you know, and, and usually failed. But uh, I thought I would rent this little spot at 700 square feet, had a big giant sign out front. Repainted it with Wild Birds Unlimited on it, and by golly, people started showing up.
0: Hmm. So, so how long did it take before uh, you realized that you had you had something good going?
1: wasn't long actually uh, we actually started franchising formally 2 years later i took on a wow. partner he was a naturalist up in michigan and but he wholesaled bird feeders out of his basement so he was like an entrepreneur too mm-hmm. then i got married to my wife nancy and so uh, so we started franchising only 2 years later so that means actually we really started conceiving of that i was only open about a year and a half wow, wow. and uh, what happened is uh, a nephew of a retired gentleman that worked for me visited indianapolis from michigan and he said i hate my job i sell wholesale carpets uh, you look <laughs> happy how do i do what you do and i said come <laughs> back in six months and i'll sell you a franchise <laughs> wow so i bought a three dollar book on how to franchise your business and I wrote a 30-page manual, and he he thought that was just dandy. I didn't charge very much, and uh, he came back. And uh, so, starting in '83, we ended up actually starting to sell about five uh, franchises a year for the next six. Wow, months.
0: that's that's crazy. Yeah. Speaking for myself, you know, when I started getting into birding, uh, I spent a lot of time at at our, my local Wild Birds Unlimited, and it was sort of eye opening. It's this validation of this interest that I had had. You know, it was a place where you couldn't just get you didn't just get feeders and, and bags of sunflower seeds like you get at the you know the farm the farm supply store, but also you know optics and field guides. And I think it was the first time I ever saw a field guide to to another country was at was at that Wild Birds Unlimited. You know, we've seen a rise in the birding interest in the last several years. Do you think that Wild Birds Unlimited has sort of mirrored that rise, and and has your approach changed as birders have sort of gotten more sophisticated about their needs?
1: Well, we have come a long ways from 1981. I'll I'll go back there one more time. Uh, That was when the perception of bird watchers was little old ladies in tennis shoes. Yeah. So here I was, a uh, 28 year old guy. Probably, I guess, a little nerdy, but not too nerdy, <laughs> and uh, and and so I gave everybody, you know, and and men, you know, permission to like birds, yeah, and talk about birds, and bring in their photographs, and share their stories, and ask for squirrel solutions, <laughs> right. or just enjoy the beauty. And so I had learned as a graduate student when I was getting my master's degree. In horticulture, I I was a teacher's assistant, so I just used that same style in the store. I I taught people about birds, and if they wanted to make a purchase, then they would. And teaching people about it really is then our our style now as well, that we are always just teaching them how to enjoy the birds more and more joyfully. Mm -hmm. And that's really just the basis for the whole uh, customer relationship. So... As we have been here, and back to your question, I think we have helped drive the high-quality bird feeding market. There have been mm-hmm. online retailers like Duncraft who have done this for, what, 60 years now? Mm-hmm. And other people like them through the years. But we were then the brick-and-mortar spot that you could go into and have a face-to-face conversation. Yeah. The, that store knew about what birds are in this city This week, uh, residents, migrants, uh, so forth, and and what's working here. And so that, I think, has helped elevate the entire hobby in the segment of things that really work. Now, what's frustrating to me is that there is an incredible amount of bird food out there that doesn't work, yeah. and it's a waste. And to me, it's not only is it a waste of people's money to buy a bag of bird food where half or more of it just gets scratched out so they can find a few sunflower seeds. It's a waste of our natural resources, our our farmers, our parking, our warehousing. Our It's just a waste. And even if a bag costs more money, it's worth it because uh the birds actually eat the food
0: quality of the birds that you attract too is also better
1: right so even though i feel that we have affected that the the quality mark and we've helped bring it along and we, we hear that that manufacturers often do look and see what what are we doing to know where they need to be at that higher end there is still an awful lot of just, you know, the, the wild bird mix that just doesn't have very good food in it. Yeah. And here's kind of the interesting on that. The industry of, uh, the wild bird feeding industry that all people in the industry belong to and the big manufacturers, we we hired out a study at a university to find out what do the birds actually eat. And so what we found out is, well, what do you expect? They like sunflower and, and white millet and, and peanuts and safflower and, All the stuff that we call fillers, like milo and wheat, and too much cracked corn, you know, just a little cracked corn can be okay, but too much is not good. The birds don't like it for, you know, and so, but what do they do? That's mostly what they make.
0: Yeah, well, you know, you buy a 20-pound bag of that wild bird mix at your local department store, and, you know, maybe the birds are eating... Five pounds of it <laughs> you
1: know. that's absolutely right so do the math on uh, what and one of the things in the book if you notice i tried to do is is teach people how to read labels mm-hmm. and i want to empower people wherever they bought bird food to read the labels and actually the first thing first chapter in the book is is teaching you the foods because once you learn the foods that birds eat then you are in charge of your bird feeding hobby uh, and your purchases. Yeah. And it doesn't matter whether you're at a specialty store or at a big box, you know what food to buy. And exactly. that's that really my goal.
0: The the joy of bird feeding is this really comprehensive look at backyard birding covering a lot of topics. You know, bird feeding is one of those things that seems super simple, but there are a lot of things people can do to make the experience more enjoyable. Obviously, feeding birds is something that's been a professional and personal interest for you. Was it difficult to distill all that experience into something like this book?
1: Uh, yes, Nate. It was. I, <laughs> I spent 16 years writing this book. I'm sure. And uh, and in many of those years, you know, we partly writing. Okay, I get started, and, and and a lot of it was taking photographs of birds on feeders, mm-hmm. and but yeah, I I guess I would say I'm I'm a self-described bird feeding geek, <laughs> uh, and I don't know how many of those there are in the world, yeah. but I I just. I enjoy it, I love it every day I'm, I'm thinking about it, I'm trying different things and as I put my final chapters together on this and decide how I, how I would approach it I decide that previously in other books and even in our stores to, to a certain extent it was a lot of teaching about the parts and pieces mm-hmm. here's the feeders, here's the food Here's the birds. Here's the solutions. Even when you walk in our store, it can look like a lot of parts and pieces. Here's the feeders. Here's (laughs) the food and so forth. What I wanted to do is try to get people to be more thoughtful about the hobby. I think a good example for me was I had recently taken up fly fishing out west. And I was thinking about, my gosh, the hobbyists in fly fishing are very thoughtful about every single little detail. So that was a good uh, model for me to think, well, you know, most people who feed the birds really are not that intense Mm -hmm. about every little detail. It's kind of like they tend to buy feeders and they buy some food and and that can last for years and years. And they maybe add uh, nectar in the summer and or fruit if those birds are around. But otherwise, you know, they try to solve a problem with a squirrel maybe, but it's otherwise they, they... they don't put as much thought into it as I do. So I thought, right. well, why don't I share how I think about it, and I'll call it being thoughtful. And I thought there's also a pathway to becoming really good at it. So I have the you know the, the five steps, the bird mm-hmm. feeding mastery, and then you know one of those is 12 elements of a thoughtful bird feeding station. And uh, those are the things I, I want people to uh, understand that made it easier to... Walk the path into becoming really good at feeding the birds, right. and and the and the whole idea is then there's more joy in the hobby, fewer frustrations, and that you're empowered to make good decisions.
0: Right. Right. So, uh, what do you think that people who feed birds don't always realize that they should realize? Is there any simple thing that that they can do immediately, aside from you know quality? bird food, I think that would be the obvious one, that would make their bird feeding more enjoyable?
1: Well, I actually, I I talk about old school bird feeding and new school bird feeding. Mm -hmm. And, And old school is what we did for many years. It was really the, you know, just basic sunflower seed is, you know, really great in the shell and suet cakes are, you know, for woodpeckers and sunflowers for cardinals and chickadees and so forth and niger seed is for goldfinches. Mm-hmm. Well, that, that that is still accurate, but uh, I think the, the mm. foods that are available are so interesting now, and and all the rules have been broken down. So now I have uh, one of the favorite foods of cardinals is uh, hot pepper suet dough. Really? Yeah. Huh. And have, they might come to that, that. that as as easily as they do sunflower seeds. And then migrating rose breasted grosbeaks, when they come through Indiana, they will go to the hot pepper suet dough (laughs) as easily as they do to sunflower seeds. So, and then there's seed cylinders where we just basically, you know, kind of glue the seeds together with a protein binder. And those can have all the different kinds of foods sunflower and and seeds uh, with the shell or without the shell. They can have peanuts, they can have fruits. So all the birds uh, can come to one food source. So all the rules they kind of still work if you just you know want to feed suet to cakes for the woodpeckers. Mm-hmm. But the woodpeckers will come to many many more foods than than in old uh, school bird feed. So explore, experiment, try. You know sometimes the things will work, sometimes they won't. And so to me that's kind of what I, I think is. Just experiment. Try different things.
0: Are there any differences between feeding birds on the western part of the continent versus the eastern part? I'd expect something like maybe, I don't know, like a water feature would probably be a bigger deal in the west where it's drier. There,
1: there are a few differences. Some of the foods will work everywhere. It's funny. It's like in California, uh, safflower is not eaten very much. Huh. And it could be one of the top foods in the Midwest solving for squirrels. But in, and even though they might have squirrel problems, it's the birds don't seem to like it kind of on the West Coast and, and I think all the way up into Seattle a little bit. So there's some little differences there.
0: Hmm, that's interesting. It's
1: funny, in, in Colorado, we found there's a difference between feeding on the uh, front range, like some areas are more plains and some are more foothills. Well, the size of the peanut makes a difference. <laughs> really? When huh. you put it in a blend, the bigger peanut pieces need to be for foothill feeders because you have more jays and
0: nutcrackers that makes sense
1: and if those peanut sizes are in the feeders out on the plains they go to waste because they're just too big and there aren't as many uh they'll eat peanuts but they only want little pieces so there's little you know even interesting little regional things but for the most part sunflower safflower white millet yeah the bread and butter. <laughs> They're just the bread and butter that work yeah. every year. It's just a matter of percentage usage.
0: What do you what do you enjoy the most about feeding birds in your yard?
1: Oh, that's a great question. You know what? I, I will share a secret with you. I almost named this book One Thousand Chickadees. <laughs> and George at Scott Nix told me it makes no sense whatsoever. Nobody will know what your book's about. That's right. (laughs) And actually, I think I was reading an ABA publication that was talking about, you know, the the big birders and they'd hit, you know, how many species in the Mm -hmm. year. And and I was thinking, you know what? I enjoy seeing the same chickadee a thousand times. Hmm. And that's the difference between backyard birders and maybe a lot of ABA birders is um, when you're away from your house probably especially and you are bird watching and I'm a bird watcher too. You you're counting, you know, you're checking off. I saw this and I saw mm-hmm, you know mm-hmm. forty species or eighty species today and you move on. If you see it again, it's not as important to you as the first <laughs> time you saw it. But in backyard birding, I get a pleasure every single time I see each of the different birds. Chickadees, tip mice, nuthatches uh, every single day i'm fortunate i get the pileated woodpeckers uh coming into oh, that's my There's nice. almost every day that could
0: be a tough one to get to your get to your feeder <laughs> it,
1: it is so we're very fortunate with that so i would say i just enjoy seeing the same birds every single day
0: you feel like you almost have a have a relationship with those individual birds that come to your feeder. I think I think people really really feel close to their their feeder birds in a way that they might not even birding their their local patch. And
1: you do and and because you do know that it is especially the ones we know are residents are it is the same birds and mm-hmm. and they're you know we hear stories about Cardinals pecking on the window when the feeder is <laughs> empty and, and chickadees, you know, are on the feeder as soon as you fill it. And people create a real uh, you know, relationship with the birds who share their backyard.
0: Jim Carpenter is the the founder and president of Wild Birds Unlimited. His book, The Joy of Bird Feeding, is available wherever books are sold. It is a great resource, a great gift for the bird feeding enthusiast. Thanks for thanks for taking some time to talk to me, Jim.
1: Thanks, Nate.
2: Hi, I'm Greg Nice, and as always, here with Ted Floyd. You know, hey, Ted, it's it's springtime here in the Great Lakes. I don't know what it's like up in the mountains in Colorado, but we've got ducks and cranes and blackbirds in the air, and the cardinals and chickadees in my yard are setting up territory and singing. And uh, I think today you want to talk about birdsong, but not birds that we often pay attention to as songsters,
3: Well, you mentioned ducks in the air, and I actually did want to talk about ducks, but not ducks necessarily flying around or swimming on duck ponds, but ducks actually making sounds, really cool sounds, and I think in many ways, very beautiful sounds.
2: You just were going to talk about quacking.
3: (laughs) Well, you know, there's that old saying, if it quacks like a duck, we're going to get into that, I think, in just a...
2: Let's try to keep this from quacking up, okay? (laughs) Um, all right. What are you talking
3: about? <laughs> yeah, right. Right. Okay. Well, so I think everybody, whether they're a birder or not, knows that ducks quack. We all know the quack, quack, quack of a duck. Here in my house, we have several of the the plush ducks. They have green heads. They're they're mallards. Uh, mallards do, in fact, make quacking sounds. the The kind of cool thing about mallards, though, is that the the honest to goodness quack is actually not really given by the green headed males. Now, the males do give. Quack-like sounds, but the you know the hunter's quack—that quack, 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 quack—that's actually a female vocalization, and the male gives a, a a wimpier sort of a lisping kind of a raspier quack. And I just think it's kind of cool that. The most familiar duck of all, the, the the mallard, is one that, speaking from my own personal experience, I didn't really have the uh, the sexual differences between the two figured out with regard to vocalizations, but quite recently, that the males don't really quack the way the females do.
2: When I worked at the zoo in Chicago, of course, I, I walked past the duck pond every day, and you're you know, you're right, you hear every time you'd hear that loud, wah, 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 wah. you look, it's a female mallard, and The males just kind of sit around grunting.
3: (laughs) At least they quack.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Um, I mean, there are some ducks that actually sing.
3: Yeah, you know, singing is in the uh, ear of the beholder, but uh, I'll, I'll say that there are many ducks, really the majority of them, that don't give sounds that any of us would consider quacks at all and and just you know, a familiar example of this for many of us in the ABA area would have to be the the wood duck that you know gloriously over the top ridiculously party colored bird and, and the, the females too that you know the males take the cake but the the females are just as beautiful
2: it is interesting when i take new birders out especially in the springtime when when the wood ducks are coming back in the woods are all flooded and they're full of wood ducks you take a new birder out into the woods and you Walk in, and you hear this noise, and they're looking around. You, don't, you know, I'm just like, oh yeah, there's some wood ducks. They have no idea that a duck would make that sound.
3: Yeah, and and the cool thing is the not maybe they have no idea, and also I think a lot of us, and again I'll sort of go back to personal experience, not all that long ago, don't realize just how different the male and female vocalizations are. So you know, the male gives that uh, very weak and wimpy sort of long, drawn out hissing whistle, sort of a. Sh- as it flies by, and then and then the female gives that loud, piercing, whoik, whoik, and this calls are instantly differentiable. In fact, I, you know, it would be totally reasonable to think that they're given by different species, and and perhaps not ducks at all.
2: All right, obviously mallards quack. We got wood ducks that whistle, but there's other there's other duck sounds out there.
3: Yeah, and again, just looking at the really familiar ducks. I'm not going to try to get into the uh, you know, range-restricted eiders of uh, Alaska or anything like that. Birds like our um, American wigeon, green-winged teal, northern shoveler, th- th- those are birds that are all over the ABA area. They're, they're vocalizing right now, and I would say that they don't quack. The, the male American wigeon, which is a very vocal bird, gives that uh, piercing three-syllable note, that... <coughs> Piping. Yes, yeah, well, speaking of piping, the bird that really pipes for my money is going to be the, uh, the green winged teal. The, uh, the males give this beautiful, sort of, uh, rich, sonorous, sort of sad sounding, uh, piercing as they, uh, they flush and sometimes even when they're just sitting on the water, but mainly when they're, uh, when they're in flight. The, the shoveler, another bird familiar to all of us, the, uh, the, the males in particular will get together in these, uh, feeding frenzies. The females too, but the, the males will give this, uh, kind of mumbling, sh- sh- as they go. And that's just another one of those sounds that I certainly wouldn't call a quack. Um, I also have to just make a a shout out here to the the common golden eye. Now, there is a bird. I
2: was just about to bring up common golden eye. Here in Chicago, we have a lot of lakefront and a lot of open water, and there's a lot of ducks in the harbors. And every year about this time, the eBird reviewers have to deal with people reporting common (laughs) nighthawks. In March, along the lakefront.
3: Right. So the the golden eye that the male gives this really elaborate and stereotype display, whereby he'll throw his head back at this improbable angle, not more than straight up, sort of almost pointing backward. Uh, he'll build up to it with this a uh, uh, weird low. Growling sound—it's really not audible unless you're close up. But then it will give this very far-carrying peep peep, which you liken to a a, a, a nighthawk. It also reminds me of a bird that you do hear at this time of the year in Chicago, and that would be the uh, the American woodcock. Uh, I, I, exactly. I, I remember an episode—this uh, th- th- was years ago here—but where a uh, a woodcock was being reported out of range, and it turned out that it was a um, a common goldeneye. So. We could debate till the cows yeah. come home what that sound is. To me, it's sort of a, a <laughs> buzz followed by a peat. I'll call it, but it, it's it's not a quack, and it's something that most of us in the ABA area have access to uh, right now.
2: I suppose you could say that's kind of singing because it involves a display and everything. But but there's a duck that I think sings, and it it's it's now called the long-tailed duck but didn't used to be.
3: Right. So uh, birders above a, a certain age, or, or at least any, <laughs> say any birder, any birder <laughs> who consults an old field guide uh, will know the name uh, Old Squaw, which was retired by the American, now the American Orthological Society, then the American Orthologist Union, I, I believe in the 1990s for, um, well, I'm going to use a, a word here that I'm going to sort of have to dig myself out from in a moment here, for, for, for reasons of political correctness. Yeah, that, that name, Old Squaw, is, I think, unique for being simultaneously ageist, sexist, and racist. It, it accomplished all three. <laughs> wrong, wrong, wrong on every <laughs> yeah, level. It's, it's abso- absolutely wrong. So they uh, got rid of that, you know, admittedly, sort of e- evocative, but I think very... Um, you know, inappropriate name at at our cultural juncture here. Uh, So we now call it the long-tailed duck. It it is a long-tailed duck. That's a very nice and descriptive name. The old name Old Squaw gets at the tendency of this bird, um, and not just on the breeding grounds, on the wintering grounds pretty much throughout throughout the year, just to uh, give this... Endless and, and really just a beautiful—I use the word evocative—yodeling.
2: Uh, y- it is haunting. I mean, if you're if you're out like on a big lake or out on the ocean, and you just you hear this sound drifting in, because they don't tend to—at least here—they don't tend to come in close to shore. But you can hear them, and it's just it, – it does. It sounds like ghosts yodeling out over the water. You
3: mentioned the ocean, and that to me is where the effect is most powerful. I'm you know, picturing myself in stormy weather and late winter off the Atlantic coast, and you know, the waves are crashing. It's just so loud. You can barely hear everything. But above the, the din of the surf, you still hear this, uh, oh, I'm a let. At- how am I that? That's, that's yeah, the, the, yeah. the yodeling or the uh, constant singing, the vocalizing of the, uh, the, the long-tailed duck. So regardless of what we call the bird, it is really one of the, I think, the really powerful and haunting natural sounds of the continent. I'll say this. That bird does not quack. Again, we can debate what sound that is, but it's, it's no quack.
2: It doesn't. If you had to pick a favorite duck song, would that be it?
3: The old squaw is right up there, but I'll, I'll
2: – <clears throat> The long-tailed duck is right there. I'm sorry, the long-tailed duck. I'm, sorry, right
3: the, the long-tailed duck. I'm <laughs> dating myself, Greg, but what can I say? <laughs>
2: I, I am too. I am too. I had to, that was a conscious effort of playing good cops.
3: Indeed. The uh, well, for, okay. From the uh, from the definitely sexist old squad to the somewhat suggestive redhead, uh, I will now move on to what is it really my, my favorite duck vocalization and just about my favorite bird vocalization. I'm gonna I'm not gonna put you in the spot here, but if you're like most birders you don't even know what the redhead sounds like. And, and hey, man, I was there just a few years ago. And I'm going to say that the redhead is up there for me with birds like the catharus thrushes, sandhill cranes.
2: All right. That's saying something. <laughs> I mean, while you've been talking, I've been sitting here thinking, have I ever heard a redhead? And I don't know that I have.
3: So I'm going to guess you have, but you might not have noticed it because the call is soft. Um, it's actually far carrying, but it's a, it's a rather soft call. And I'm referring specifically to the uh, the male or drake chorusing. So what the birds will do at this time of the year is the males will gather on these uh, large uh, still lakes inland and they engage in this wild chorusing. It's sort of mournful but also exuberant. There's something, I don't know, just sort of wild and primal about it, but there's also an, an artistry about it. So any particular male redhead gives this this um, descending, ooh, ooh. But then eight or 10 of them will pick it up. And if they're 800 males, they'll all pick it up. And you hear this, and there's just something about that sound that conjures to me these uh, (laughs) lovely sort of late afternoons, late winter, early spring. It's it's still cold. The air is still. There's just a, uh, I don't know, a a poignancy, an expression about it all. So
2: yes, I have heard that sound twice. I have heard The sound that you just made in a South Park episode. And I have heard the sound you're describing out in the marshes on a still morning. Yeah.
3: So uh, with ducks and you can certainly go in the South Park um, direction, basically uh, groups of birds that are not yet on the breeding grounds engaging in this group chorusing. And it's just a sound that, uh, I don't know, I to me, it just conjures up the the experience of of, of wildness, of, of of being out of doors. it uh, is just something I just want more of it. I, I just love the sound of the redhead. It's it's as I said, sort of simultaneously, sort of sad and mournful, but it's also just uh, exuberant and expect. Yeah, it's pretty
2: obvious that you love duck music. What's what's so special about this for you?
3: It's not so much about the ducks, and I'm sorry to sort of turn it back toward me here, but really, as it is about me. I liken ducks to you know cranes and catharis thrushes. And, and that's obviously subjective. We, we can argue about whether the uh, long-tailed duck, I got it right that time, or, or the uh, sandhill tail crane is really the more accomplished vocalist. But the sort of personal um, angler appeal for me is that this is all kind of new to me. Uh, I've been birding for, for a long, long time. And you know there were some birds like the widgeon and the wood duck and the long-tailed duck that I um, have known for a long, long time. But some of the other stuff I've been talking about, I, I haven't really learned about until relatively recently. I think that if you'd put me on the spot, I don't know, I 10 years ago, I don't know, maybe even six or seven years ago, I probably couldn't have told you what the uh, what the redhead sounds like. Um, I'll mention a, a, another duck, one that I've known for, gosh, more than 35 years, uh, the, the canvas back. Now, I know what they sound like because I've listened to recordings online and I've read the descriptions, but I have never knowingly heard the chorusing of the canvas back, which from what I gather is even more stirring than the chorusing of the of the redhead. So there's a bird that's familiar hmm. to pretty much anybody who's spent any amount of time at a duck pond or as you said, a harbor or bay or one of the great lakes or even a not so great lake. There are canvas backs everywhere. I've known them for so long and I don't know. Not by I, I've heard the vocalizations that they give us a flush, but I'm talking about the actual singing of the canvas back. I don't think I know yeah. that. That's my answer to the question. Duck music is so special to me because it's something I'm still learning, something I'm still discovering, and, and something that I will, I, I think, am delighting in, and will always delight in sharing with other people. We have a little duck pond, 500 feet from from, from my house, and all the neighbors know that there are ducks there. I mean, that's just patently obvious to anybody who has normal human vision. But when you stop them and actually get them to listen to birds like the gadwall or the American widgeon, uh, or here's one we haven't talked about at all, the uh, the, the hooded merganser, they, they pause and they say, wait a minute, those sounds are being made by those ducks? And I, I feel the same way. And, and that's why I think duck music, as I like to call it, is so special to me.
2: Yeah, and you just, you know, you just reminded me that Coming up now in March, the the largest staging area for canvasbacks in their in their range is the Mississippi River, where Wisconsin, Iowa, and Illinois all meet. Um, so I I think that's that's going to be something I do in the next coming weeks. Here is get out there and listen to canvasbacks.
3: And one of these years, Greg, I'll have to join you for that myself.
2: <laughs> well, you should. And until then. I think we're going to have to sign off here.
3: Oh, Greg, it's been fun talking with you about ducks. Thanks a lot.
2: Always a good time, Ted. Talk to you soon. The duck recordings used in the
0: previous segment all came from Xenocanto.org and recordists, Taro Linyama, Paul Marvin, Jim Holmes, Peter Bozeman, Patrick Oberg, and Patrick Turjan. We thank them. The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. Support this podcast and the North American Birding community by joining the ABA today. Not only will you receive our two great magazines, but you can get discounts to our partnering companies, participate in ABA events, and help us to build a better birding community for anyone and everyone in Interested in wild birds? Get more information at aba.org/join. Special thanks to Jonathan Strandjord of Medina, Minnesota, and M. R. Bloomer Reed of Wilmot, Illinois, for joining the ABA and noting this podcast as a reason. Thanks and welcome to the ABA. We're still looking for help on our listener demographics survey. If you have already filled it out, thank you very much. If you haven't, there's still time. There's always time. The link is in the show notes. Executive producer of the podcast and president of the ABA is Jeffrey Gordon. He's quite distinctive at meetings. He gives a low purring croak, descending and slowing pow-wah. Technical production is by John Lowry with a low, hollow, quavering moan in a crescendoing series. Brew, 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 brew. Additional help comes from David Hartley and Greg Neese. Nice. One gives a low nasal rah. The other is essentially silent, except when displaying a muffled popping series. With a series of staccato pops. We're online at aba.org, on Facebook at facebook.com slash and on Twitter at ABA. We are the most vocal ABA with a slurred, mellow piping pew and a plaintive whistling cree. Questions and comments can come to me at podcast.aba.org. I'm Nitswick. Thanks for listening. Till next time.